0: Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in.
1: Well, good evening. How's everyone doing? Good. It's just while we're singing just thinking about the words uh to both those songs, but as we're ending there. Your love, O Lord, right? Reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness. And just made me again just think about what we're studying through. You know, we, we sometimes look at, and I'm, I certainly do this a lot, I look at the Old Testament often in the light of, you know, the history of mankind. But really, if we're, if we're understanding it, reading it correctly, it's really the story, the history of God's faithfulness, right? His love that just reaches way beyond what humanity is capable of, which is really dark, right? We see that in our day. And aren't we glad that his faithfulness is more than, more than we can understand, It reaches beyond boundaries we, we can't comprehend because we are not that kind of people. And uh, Anyways, we are resuming our study in Genesis If you want to, you can turn to chapter 13 before we dive into chapter 13, and actually 14 tonight. I wanna pick up just a few pieces from our last time in our study in Genesis chapter 12, um, where we took a little break from that for Good Friday uh, service and then uh, Easter, Easter Sunday. By the way, how many of you attended the Good Friday service? Wow, the majority of you, yeah. It was really, I really loved it, especially this year because it was a little bit different uh, in the past from what we've done as far as how we end that service. And so, you know, as you remember, we've just asked everyone to quietly walk out, no conversations, and to, to go home. And it really solidified, I don't know if it for you, but it solidified the... Um, the tremendous cost of salvation. It just made me grasp that better. To walk out, as Pastor Doug even said on Sunday, if you were there on that Friday, it was anything but a good Friday, right? It was the, one of the darkest days in history. And yet it's from that, uh, I think as, as someone said that the resurrection took, started in darkness. You know, you think of Jesus in the tomb and it's, it's in that darkness that we appreciate the light that came forth, amen? So, um, chapter 12 of Genesis. Think back with me, there uh, Abraham is. He receives this call from God to leave his family and everything familiar and to discover the blessings of, of obeying God's commands. They're part of God's continuing plan to redeem or rescue mankind, the promise that he made in the opening chapters of Genesis to Adam and Eve, and he's continued that plan all through. And we see this ebb and ebb and flow, or rise and fall, of humanity. There are uh, limited numbers of people seeking God, and God using those few individuals or in single persons to carry forth his plan and he's now as we said before he's narrowing down his focus he's, he's saying I've shown that I can do it with individuals that I, it, and it didn't work and now I'm going to on a single individual and out of that a whole nation we'll see how that goes and we'll, we'll see this pattern continue of God reaching down into humanity and using humanity to bring the light of the glory of God and yet failing again and then judgment, and then the process begins again. But God's blessings continue um, to, to go forward as, as an effort to rescue mankind from our, our certain death and that eternal separation from him because of sin. As I mentioned last, the last time we were together, one of the things that I liked about the history of Abram's faith is the fact that it shows him as a real person, that all, with all of his mistakes and failings, or as I said, all of his warts. Um, he didn't respond immediately to God's plan. We learned that from the New Testament, that he received the call while he was still in Mesopotamia. He delays. Then he kind of goes halfway with his father and his nephew and waits till his father dies, and then he finally heads out after his father dies, but he still takes his nephew. So he's still not fully, he's in partial obedience But in chapter 12, the Lord makes an unconditional covenant or agreement with Abram, one which included tremendous blessings, not just to Abram, but also to everyone, all of his descendants after him. And by relationship, we talked about the fact that that blessing would come to us, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And, And the responsibility to walk in that and to see the opportunities that he had and that we have to share this great gift and blessing. His life was to be a testimony. Our lives are meant to be a testimony of God's glory and grace. And that is the reason he purchased us. That's the reason he he chose Abram is to display his grace and his mercy and his glory through him. As Abram continued through life, he failed to trust God for provision and safety. We saw that as he runs off to Egypt. He, he leaves the promised land, the place where God sent him and said, go there, go to Canaan. I will show you. And he's like, well, it's a famine in the land. I, you know, probably got to do something. You know, uh, you know, God helps those who help themselves, which, by the way, is not in the Bible. <laughs> 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 and... Uh, but that's kind of the tack he takes, right? And off he goes to Egypt, and that turns into the, one of the largest debacles of his life, passes his wife off as his sister sister, which was kind of a half truth, but an all all lie. and uh, And that creates huge problems. I was just pondering that talking with someone else about it, is that it wasn't just that he disobeyed God, but he jeopardized this whole family. Because if you think about it just in the natural realm, without God's intervention, had anyone else done this, Pharaoh would have been just like, well, now I am going to kill you, and I am going to take your wife, <laughs> right? Instead, by God's grace, and it truly is the incredible undeserved merit, Abram leaves with way more than he arrived with, right? Pharaoh's like, dude, get out of here and take all this stuff with you, right? If by some chance God might remove the sickness from us, right? Right? And so he sends him off, he returns. It's no different for you and I. Our sinful actions have real life consequences. Consequences that often affect not just us, but those that we love and are responsible for. And and if we're to avoid this, we need to keep our eyes on Christ. We need to keep our focus on the prize. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Our eyes would be fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter, the one who sanctifies us, sets us apart in the faith. However, when we fail, and we will fail, I think we can all agree, just as God did with Abraham, he doesn't abandon us. He doesn't say, Well, that was a nice try. Um, I'm going to go find somebody else. He is faithful, just again, as we sang, he's faithful to the promise that he made to redeem people, to, to make us children of God, heirs to the promises of Christ. He's faithful to his promises and he is incredibly gracious. And we see this in as that story unfolds with Abram. Again, does this mean there are no consequences for sin? <laughs> No, there is a price to be paid for disobedience. As a faithful father, the Lord will often allow natural consequences to teach us, to instruct us. Other times he may need to intervene and discipline us himself. However, in both circumstances, his purpose is to correct and direct us to the path of righteousness, to make us holy, to set us apart and to use us as a testimony of His grace, His faithfulness, and His love. Abram, he was learning these lessons. We, uh, hopefully, as we are learning them, and his life serves both as a, a warning, but an encouragement. Like. I look at his life and I'm like, all right, he is considered a hero in the faith. He made some major debacles. It isn't the first. It won't be the last, right? And I can find some encouragement in the fact that I know I'm going to fail, but I have a faithful father who, like I was with our children, when they fell down, I want to reach them down and pick them up, dust them off, put a Band-Aid on the wound, whatever that be, wipe away their tears and say, okay, come on, let's go together. And this is where we pick up now in Genesis chapter 13. If you'll read with me, we'll just read through little sections and we'll talk about it. Uh, verse one, it says, so Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, silver and gold, and he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, the place of the altar which he made there previously and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now picture with me, you're leaving Egypt and all the chaos that you invited with you, right? Now you're, le- you're leaving there with this household that you've put into jeopardy. And I can only imagine if you were on driving on I-5 in that circumstance, the awkward conversations that would ensue. Like, I told you, God is our, we could trust him. I told you this not, was not gonna work out. And, and this is the reality. We think these ideas are really good sometimes, right? We can, we can justify, we think, our actions, but they never turn out well. They just don't when we're relying upon our own wisdom and understanding. All those, the risks of destroying his marriage or bringing about the death of his whole family, they were likely part of those awkward conversations at night in the tents along the way, right? Just like, whoa, heavy stuff. But he arrives back where he started, back where God told him to go, to the promised land, even to the place where he set up this altar. And and this is an incredibly beautiful picture. He's learning from his failures, as we ought to learn. He returns to the place God led him and he returns to what he knows is true. And, and when we find those, those times, that's important for us to do. God is faithful. His commands are, are not burdensome and he is gracious when we fail. And when we come to that place and say, I, I've messed this up, we return to what we know is true. And he does that. He returns to the where he offered sacrifice and where he worshiped God. And this is sound biblical advice, a healthy practice for our lives. After we sin, the best thing that we can do is to return to the truth, to return to God in repentance and in worship. And and even though it doesn't expressly say that, what we see coming out of the rest of this chapter and even chapter 14, is a heart that is surrendered to God more clearly. And I believe that stems from this desire to worship God in light of his sin, his failures, to humbly come before God, say, you're good, I'm not. Will you forgive me? And I know that you're gracious and you love me. Let me walk with you again. And so he returns to this place of worship through the leading of the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation, John wrote to the congregation in Ephesus. He said these words, he says, but I have this argument that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. repent. Return to your first love. And this is indeed what Abram is doing. He's returning to that first love that says, all I really had from the beginning was God. God blessed me incredibly. And even when I mucked it up, he forgave me and now he continues to bless me as I approach him in humility, repentance, worship, and now in obedience. Though he failed, he now sets a standard, really, of repentance. When life is out of order, we fail to follow the Lord in whatever area of life that is, we must remember our first love. We must remember the one who called us by name, who, who offered his life, who stepped down out of heaven and says, I will give you all. I will surrender all of that to purchase you, to purchase me, to return to that first love. And and think about that. Every time we worship, and and I'm not talking about just singing songs. Every time we read and we sing, every time we pray, what we ought to be doing is remembering. Remembering. And I'm not saying remembering our sin. Yes, that's a tiny little part of it, but you can't stay there, right? It's like, oh God, you're so good. Why is he so good? Because we're not. But then we return to that like, oh Lord, how could I do anything but worship you to declare your goodness, to draw near to you, to seek the truth. A recognition of our lack of faith in light of his never-ending faithfulness. However, despite Abram's returning in repentance and worship, there are still some unresolved circumstances in his life. Remember, God called him to leave everything. And he's got some extra passengers in his life. So we come to verse five. And God's desire really is to purify his children, right? to sanctify them, to set them apart, to make them holy. And he's going to resolve this issue now. He says, Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents, and the land could not support both of them while living together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herds, the herdsmen of live, Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land at that time. So, here are these two great, wealthy men, strangers in the land. They're surrounded by the Canaanites and the parasites, the ungodly people watching them, observing them. right? So there is this testimony that they need to uh, present, especially Abram, this testimony of the faithfulness, the truthfulness of God, the unity of God. But here he is. he's now in this place of kind of delayed obedience or partial obedience. And the sin is the consequence is still coming out. And and God sometimes allows the consequence of sin to to percolate for years until the time is right when we're ready to say, I want to be done with this. I I really want to be done with this. I, I want a change in my life. And our heart is in a place of surrender. So in this situation, God allows the natural courses of life to shed. The light of truth. He was supposed to be trusting. Abram's supposed to be trusting in the Lord alone. Uh, just conjecture, but perhaps he brought Lot along like, hey, it'd be nice to have someone guard my back. Some extra people, some extra bodies We're going into an unknown place. Whatever that circumstance was, he wasn't supposed to have the extra baggage, the extra provision, the extra protection, whatever that was. He brought along Lot, and now the blessings of the Lord are creating conflict with those who are not being led by the Lord, and we'll see this play out over the next several chapters. Uh, the truth is, if you think about it in our lives, there will always be strife, disunity between the righteous and the worldly, and we'll get into that a little deeper as we look at what's happening with Lot, but we should not expect anything less when we attempt to blend those two things together, what do we see in our culture today? You know, if we if we've learned anything from the encountering the culture uh, series, if uh, Pastor Doug's message, you know, on First Corinthians, when we try to blend the world with the message of Christ, we end up with a mess. I'm not saying that Lot didn't believe in God because the New Testament actually declares him to be that righteous Lot, which is hard for me to grasp sometimes. <laughs> but rather, Lot was divided in his loyalties. And, this, and again, it's clearly seen as we go here into chapter 13, 14, and then again in chapter 19. But as followers of Jesus, who were we to be solely dependent upon? Upon him, Apart from me, you can do nothing, right? He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the way, as Pastor Doug mentioned this Sunday, the truth and the life. There is only one way, one source that we can go to, that we can rely upon, and that will lead us in the path of righteousness, And we cannot expect anything from him if we're unwilling to follow where his wisdom leads us. But as I said before, Abram seems to be learning from his mistakes. So in verse eight, uh, so Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen for we are relatives. Is the entire land not before you? Please separate from me. If you choose the left, then I will go to the right. If you choose the right, then I will go to the left. Lot raised his eyes and saw all the vicinity of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt going to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the vicinity of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward. So they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the vicinity of the Jordan and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked sinners against the Lord. So now we're gonna see the contrast here. In contrast to when Abram runs to Egypt during the famine, he is now fully trusting trusting in the Lord's provision, like he's remembering the Lord's promises, the covenant that the Lord made with him to make him a great nation, to bless him, to give him all the land. He remembers all of these things, the promises. He knows the future is secure and that the Lord's provisions will not fail. And this leads to Abram to react or to act from the heart of God, to be a peacemaker, to be a person of generosity. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You see, in the culture of their day, as the, as the elder statesman, the older gentleman in the relationship, the uncle, and also as the recipient of this covenant from God, Abram could have asserted his rights, his biblical and cultural rights, and asked Lot, hey, this isn't working out, you go somewhere else. All this that you see, all this is mine. You go somewhere else. But he didn't. And and perhaps this is because he's recalling the kindness, the grace and the mercy of the Lord as he led him from Egypt back to Bethel and Ai, back to the altar, back to that place of humility and brokenness that he says, all I ever had was you. All I ever need is you. You're enough for me. And so he takes the role of a servant and offers first choice to Lot. Romans 12, 18, it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It's speaking of the conflicts between believers and unbelievers, but the principle also is there that as far as it it depends upon us, in our relationships that we ought to be at peace with all men, that that we would have that heart which was also in Christ who though he, he had this equality with God, he did not believe that it was necessary to hold on to it, something as Philippians says, something to be grasped, to clutch tightly to and never let go, that we've received adoption as children of the living God. As I said before, heirs in the promises of Christ. We we possess all things through Him. So Abram remembers all the land. It really it belongs to him. I can loan it to you. (laughs) Knock yourself out. He has nothing to lose except his pride and his cultural rights. And you and I, we're often called to take a high road. The question is, how often do we? In in that same passage in Romans 12, we are called to bless those who persecute us, to trust the wisdom of God and to care for others. Like Abram, our future is secure, isn't it? Do we believe enough to walk in that? The promises in Jesus can never be taken away. We have literally nothing to lose. Jim Elliott, if you're not familiar with him, he was a missionary to one of the South American countries. Him and a few other guys went in to evangelize and didn't even get to share the gospel. His life was taken by those, those tribesmen. But he wrote these words, he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He gave his life, which he couldn't keep, to gain heaven. The beauty of that story, if you're not familiar with it, and if you wanna watch the video version of it, I think it's called The the Tip of the Spear great story, tells the story of how then as a result, through his children, through his wife, because of his death and offering himself as a, quote, type of Christ, a picture of Christ, that that tribe came to know Christ. And the very one that took his life surrendered to Jesus, right? Powerful story. Abram gladly gave away the best and the most fertile part of the land. He gave the best of his life by the world standards. He gave up short-term wealth that he might have come to gain in that for long-term blessing from God. Lot chose what he could see and it revealed the content of his character much as it does in our lives. It revealed his greater love. He was, in the reverse, walking by sight, not by faith. As we see in verses 12 and 13, this choice leads, led him to more and more compromise. His desire for wealth and security led to compromised convictions and now partnership with the world. It says he moved his tents as far as the city it's just like he moved it inch by inch, the compromise, layer after layer. Jesus said in chapter 14, or James, I'm sorry, James chapter, oh, I forgot the, the chapter now, but it's verse 14. <laughs> um, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's run its course, brings forth death. This is what you see happening in Lot's life. And, and we'll, if we, you see that final picture all the way in chapter 19. Because Lot chose wealth and temporary security, but in the end, he loses everything. And he drops off the page of history until we hear this Small little comment in the New Testament, which is baffling to me. But he, his is a path leading to temptation and from temptation to lust and from lust to sin and finally sin to death. He becomes the contrast to the life of Abraham. And, and its contrast is, is is to serve as a warning. Choose which side you wanna live on. Which, which route do you wanna take? It's to serve as a contrast and a warning to you and I. Verse 14 now, it says, "'The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, "'Now raise your eyes and look from the place "'where you are, northward, southward, "'and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, "'I will give to you and to your descendants forever. "'I will make your descendants as plentiful "'as the dust of the earth, "'so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, "'then your descendants could also be counted.'" God reaffirms the covenant. He's like, now you get it. So I'm gonna remind you again of what you get in this bargain. It's a one-sided bargain, really, even for us today, right? God does all the work. He blesses us for believing him, right? Rewards us for following him. But he does all the work. And this is what God is doing with Abram. He, he, He reaffirms the blessings and the obedience uh, the blessings of obedience that come with the covenant. Abram chose future security found in obedience to the Lord and he gains everything. The question is, is which, again, which historical figure do we want to be characterized by? Verse 17 now, it says, Arise, walk about in the land and through its length and its width, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and lived by the Oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So he's, God's reaffirmed the, uh, his love for Abram. The Lord calls him to walk with him, to walk throughout the land. He said, it's all yours. Go, go find the blessing. To walk in his promises, to worship God, for his grace, his mercy, his majesty, and his glory. And he returns to Hebron and the Oaks of Mamre. And, and I, I like the picture here with the words, uh, Mamre uh, means vision, and Hebron means communion. God is telling him, through these moving, movements throughout the, the geography, he's telling him, recall, remember the communion, the vision of communion that I've given you this relationship that we have. God is saying, remember it. And we're, we're gonna celebrate that tonight. We're gonna actually take communion tonight and, and remember that vision, that future that God has for us and the present help that we have. And Again, this is a pattern we shouldn't miss. Remembering the Lord's promises and his faithfulness, it brings about a confidence and a trust. When, when we remember the truth and we're looking upon the truth and we're dwelling and meditating upon the truth of his word, it builds in us a confidence and a trust as we carry that out in obedience, as we live it out. In contrast, forgetting, it leads to fear and compromise. He's already been through that cycle. He's on the other side of it now. He's growing, he's moving closer to the Lord. And God invites, as he did Abram, he invites us to walk with him to walk through this world and say, listen, you have authority, the authority of Christ through the Holy Spirit to move about this land with boldness and confidence, boldly declaring the truth of God. Living in the promises, worshiping in truth and communion with him. The alternative to this choice is revealed in chapter 14. Pick up with me now in verse one of chapter 14. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elasar, Ketolomur, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor. All these kings came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. For 12 years they had served kedil but in the 13th year, these people, they rebelled. And in the 14th year, Kedilimar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and the Ashroth Karnaim and the Zuzim in Ham and the Emim in Shavakiriathim and the Horites on Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh and conquered all the countries of the Malachites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazaran Tamar. Boy, I'm working hard on this. <laughs> and the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they lined up for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Cato-Lemar, king of Elam, title king of Goim, Amraphel king of Shinar and Ariak king of Alassar four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidon was full of tar pits. And this comes later now. We get a little picture of this. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed for he was living where?
0: Sodom. In
1: Sodom, (laughs) now he's no longer just living in a tent on the outskirts, he's occupied in the city. His home next to the city, in the city of Sodom. 2 Corinthians 15.33 really reveals what's happened. There it says, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good Morals. You and I are not immune to bad company. Now, God is not saying that we should not have contact with sinners and non-believers. Christ himself demonstrated this, right? Amen. But we are not to dwell there. That is not to be our home, nor our, nor our deepest friendships. Now, each year, our family takes time in the fall, some of you already know this, to make apple cider. I love apple cider, um, in fact, if I'm honest, it's sometimes a bit of an obsession. You know, I, I purchased a freezer just so I could have enough apple cider to get me through all the way until the next fall. <laughs> but, even, but even as a child, I remember really enjoying um, picking apples. I grew up in, for part of my, good portion of my growing up, grew up in Central Washington, which is you know, Apple Central. Really enjoyed picking the apples, crushing them, squeezing out the juice so we could enjoy that really cold, tangy sweetness, right? Hope you're tasting it right now. (laughs) My mouth is watering, thinking about it. Cold. I I don't care for hot so much. However, as, as it was back then, the picking and storing of apples until they can be crushed is really important. Making homemade cider does not require the prettiest apples, if you didn't know that. Sun scabs, discoloration, small apples, weirdly shaped apples, it doesn't really matter. What does matter is not having any rot, especially if you're gonna store them for a few days. One rotten apple laying next to good apples soon becomes two or three or more rotten apples. It will naturally affect the good apples. All it takes is time plus opportunity. This is what's happening with Lot, time plus opportunity. Furthermore, if you, if you end up with some rotten spots on some of the apples when you're ready to crush them and you don't cut them out before you crush them, your cider will turn out with this kind of funky, moldy flavor. Ew. It's not great. Yeah. <laughs> and it ferments really fast. And not in a good way. <laughs> Even remotely a good way. <laughs> it's got that funny smell and that funny taste. Life is like this. Too much proximity and too much time with people with relaxed moral values will eventually lead to a rotted faith. We run the risk of being counted as a rotten apple. Verse 13, then a survivor came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was residing by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshal and the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, numbering 318, and went into pursuit as far as Dan. Then he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus, which is up by Syria now. He brought back all the possessions and also brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the other people. You see, this is this picture. Despite the consequences of sin, the Lord is forever offering a way, and a means of escape. His character is to seek and to save the lost. See, Lot chose wealth and worldly security, really as it's mentioned in 1 Timothy 6.10, and he pierced himself with many griefs. And this is just the beginning. But Abram now walking in obedience to God and in relationship with him, he in essence carries out the gospel. Luke, it says, for the son of man has come to seek and save that which has, was lost. Lot was scooped up and Abraham becomes the picture of Jesus, leaving his home and his safety and security for the sake of others and showing mercy and grace that he didn't have to. He could have said, well, you made your bed. It's time to sleep in it. Jude, as we were just recently studying through, it it says in Jude 22 and 23, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. That's the kind of compassion that we are to have. as believers, we're called to model the example of Christ. To look for and intervene for those who are perishing. I mean, that's the purpose that he bought us for. It's not so that we could be comfortable, although I admit I like being comfortable. It's not that we could be happy, although I like to be happy. No, it's that we would display him and save others through his spirit, by the power of his spirit, to his glory. When possible, by the power of the spirit, plucking them from the pile of rotten apples. But sadly, even this tragedy did not turn Lot's heart from serving two masters. We know from future chapters that he returns to his life in Sodom. He just picks up where he left off. You would think And how many of us could say this? You would think after we made some horrible choices that we wouldn't repeat them. (laughs) I've repeated a few. But this should serve as a warning to us, similar to the warning that Jesus uttered to the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda, John 5, 13 through 14. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, (coughs) you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. There is a warning for us. There's a warning from Lot's life because the worst does happen to him. As I kind of casually mentioned, God is not primarily concerned with our happiness. Rather, his great, he is greatly concerned with our holiness. To be set apart for him and his glory. To declare his glory and his rescue. And he will continue to pursue that until the very end of our lives. Till our very last breath, he is going to pursue holiness in those who belong to him. And he will use a variety of circumstances and some of them even horrible to move us towards holiness. If we learn nothing from the history of Israel, we ought to learn that. He he loves his people even to this day and yet he continues to use a chastening rod as he has to say, I love you and I can't let you stay like you are. I won't quit. I won't give up. I made a promise. Meanwhile, Abram continues to trust the Lord and acknowledge his authority and also his provision, verse 17. Then after his return from the defeat of kedah and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high and he blessed him and said, "'Blessed be Abram of God Most High, "'possessor of heavens of heaven and earth, "'and blessed be God Most High, "'who has handed over your enemies to you.' "'And he, Abram, gave him a tenth of everything. "'Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, "'Give the people to me "'and take the possessions for yourself.' But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours so that you do not say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, honor, Eshel, and memory. Let them take their share. So, Having rescued his nephew, Lot, with the help of the Lord, he not only refuses to accept any benefit, really, of the kind of the tainted, acquired wealth, he gives a tenth of it to Melchizedek. And there, there's a lot we could spend time talking about about this piece alone. But I'll sum this up as quickly as I can. He gives it to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, The city of Salem means city of peace. That would eventually be named Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, the king of peace. And at the very least, he is a type of Christ, the ultimate king of peace, who will rule over the final city of peace, the new Jerusalem, it's just a crazy, beautiful picture encapsulated, and then we're just barely touching the surface of it. In worship of God and in recognition of his help, Abram gives a tithe to the king of peace. He acknowledges that none of it belongs to him and that God alone deserves the credit. I love that Melchizedek, he, he, he gives a blessing to Abraham, but he declares the blessing is from God. And Abram does the same in his actions. As verse 22 says, even before the battle, Abram had committed to honoring the Lord, trusting him alone for his provision and blessing. You see, because Abram already made up his mind, he couldn't be bought. He couldn't be bribed with perishing things of this world, with things that moth and rust destroy or thieves could steal. No, he, he was choosing the eternal things of God, the kingdom of God, because he knew the truth of what was later said in Colossians 3.3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I, this is one of my favorite passages. In fact, when I came out of a particularly long period, eight years of running from God and from what he desired for my life. This, this passage is where, where he landed me. Did I not purchase you? Indeed, your life is hidden, stored up in a better place for a later date. Do we find ourselves at times be willing to accept the bribes of this world? Accepting or trusting in the tainted pleasures or possessions Or do we believe that we've died, that surrendered our lives to Jesus, trusting that he has indeed hidden or stored up our life for that future glory, that it's secure, that it can't be removed? Do we take time to recall the goodness of the one who purchased us, who purchased me? As the scriptures tell us, while we were still a wreck, this disgusting pile of dirt, mud, and he says, I'll buy that one. Are we willing to give up what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose? Is honoring the Lord and rescuing the lost our greatest concern? Let me say that again. Is honoring the Lord and rescuing the lost our greatest concern? Or are we more consumed with creating a security blanket so we don't have to rely upon the Lord for anything? To be sure, there are consequences if we choose the latter. And Jesus is faithful to warn us, to rebuke us, and even to discipline us that we might be spared from future harm. As he did with Abram, the Lord invites us to walk with him, walk through the land, experience the blessing make his name known to to give ourselves to him and to others for his name's sake are we living as ones who are hidden in Christ protected if there if we are there is joy i mean joy to be found in this life regardless of what circumstance we find ourselves in we can look and say there is something better This is ugly and hard and unpleasant. I would rather not experience it, but yet what I have that I will enjoy later is so much greater. There is hope and joy unspeakable as we diligently labor labor and wait for our future home, as we look forward to fellowshipping with the king of peace, in the city of peace, amen? And just just like Abram is returning to the Oaks of Mamre there at Hebron in in that remembrance, that communion with God that he has with God, that's what we're gonna end our service with tonight. We have an opportunity to reflect on the goodness and the faithfulness of God, to remember what he did and continues to do to restore us, to make us holy, to sanctify us. Communion is a command and an encouragement from the Lord. And with humility and prayer, we ought to consider his truth, grace, and mercy before we take the bread and the cup. And so I I would ask you, you got your Bibles with you? Open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 32 read that as we close this time, as Josh comes up and leads us in worship, read through that prayerfully. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three 23 through 32. And then after you've taken that time, as, as it says, to examine our hearts, to come before the Lord, that we would rightly partake and say, God, I am, this is an act of remembrance of your goodness, your salvation your purchase of me, the gift that you've offered. Then come, come take, take the bread, take the cup. There's a station here, there's one in the back there. Uh, maybe perhaps as you're in that time of remembrance and prayer and meditation, that God will put somebody on your heart and mind that he says, I want you to go take that person commune, Sit with them, pray with them, share communion together as believers. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.